The following podcast focuses on the Catholic Church and discusses sensitive content in relation to religion and politics. It contains discussions of abuse, sexism, homophobia and sexual assault. This series has been made in collaboration with the Blue and Yellow blog of the European Students' Association. Together, Lucrazio and Victoria present the third episode in this series, The Red Line. We are recording this episode currently in the month of April, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And while you may not be listening during the month of April, we still think that it's important any time of the year to draw attention to the fact that sexual assault is pervasive throughout our societies, wherever we are from. And we would like to encourage victims of sexual assault to reach out for help in whatever form is available to them and to encourage you that it does get better and that you're not alone. You are listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back to this third episode of The Red Line, the series where we analyze the role that power and authority within the institution of the Catholic Church perpetuates instances of abuse. As always, I'm Victoria Alexander. And I'm Lucrezia Nicosia. In this episode, we will finally apply the concepts we've covered in the previous episodes in order to ask why sexual abuse runs so rampant in the Catholic Church. In the previous episodes, we've considered the way that religious dogma becomes a self-perpetuating cycle powering themes of hierarchy within the Church. In this concern, we analyze and discuss the main historical events that led the Church to have extensive power both conceptually and factually. On a conceptual level, the Church holds an extensive power within the community as a result of that dogma. On a factual level, we talked about the extensive structural power wielded by the Church as an autonomous legal and institutional entity. As we previously explained, examples of this power can easily be found in the United Nations and in the Council of Europe. From this, it's clear that the same power enjoyed by clergy members can be and has been used in continued instances of sexual abuse in the Church. But in today's episode, we'll cover some of the various reasons given for why this occurs, ranging from the nature of the hierarchical relationship between the clergy and the laity, to the euphemistic language used to minimize or even cover up instances of abuse, all the way to the religious beliefs and customs themselves which foster unhealthy relationships with one's own sexuality. Due to the distressing themes that are central to these episodes, we would like to reiterate the content warning provided at the beginning of this episode. While we aim to discuss this topic with sensitivity towards victims, conversation of this type remain by nature upsetting. Please take care. So, let's cover the first point of our discussion, the hierarchical relationship between the clergy and the laity. We've already covered the fact that the church holds a great deal of structural power as a prominent institution. And on a personal level, it holds a significant influence on people's religious belief, which comprise an important part of a person's identity. Yeah, that's right. And as we know, with these power structures also come hierarchical structures, which naturally create imbalances of power between groups. In the case of the Catholic Church, there's a huge power differential between the clergy and the laity, which is made exponentially greater when considering a more authoritative member of the clergy, such as, for example, a bishop, versus the members of the laity that are particularly vulnerable, such as children. Yeah, definitely. And most importantly, this imbalance of power has been perpetuated even through authoritative documents of the Church. An example is the 1962 Vatican document which instructed bishops that any allegation against priests in sexual abuse cases should be, and I quote, pursued in a most secretive way under penalty of excommunication. 
Therefore, it was treated as an internal church matter and not as an offense that should be reported to local authorities. And even though few changes have occurred throughout the years, even under the papacy of Pope Francis, there is no established protocol for handling sex abuse allegations for the Catholic Church as a whole. And still now, the hierarchical internal structure of the church, where superiors are given absolute obedience, makes it extremely difficult to bring high-ranking figures to justice in case of sexual abuse. Yeah, that's exactly something that I think we've been trying to lead up to in this series, is talking about the way that hierarchy itself can be a source of power that is used for more nefarious ends. And so in this case, we see that the structure of the church as it is, with such a great degree of power difference between church members and the laity, like we said before, it only is strengthened by dogma, by institutional practice, by custom, etc. And then because there's such a great degree of separation between each of these groups, you end up seeing that it's a lot easier for members in a higher position of power and authority and responsibility to take that and wield it as a weapon almost and use that against more vulnerable victims. I mean, a lot has been said in recent years in general about power imbalances as a whole, especially with the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein and all of these different cases that are now coming to light a lot more prominently. So now we're finally starting to understand better as, you know, a society, as a community, just how abusive hierarchy can be. However, when there is a hierarchical institution with a balance of power and checks and controls, as you could see, for example, in any kind of democracy, uh, a democratic state, that's different. And obviously you have way less room for abusing power. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's important to recognize that within the church and particularly within society in general, I don't foresee any sort of end to hierarchical structures between groups, between peoples. Something that I think is important to note, however, is that a lot of these hierarchies that we see that are ingrained into institutions in you know the world at large, not talking specifically of the Catholic Church, is this theme of accountability structures put in place in order to temper the effects of hierarchy. And obviously one can argue, for example, that these checks and balances, as you mentioned, are not strong enough, for example, in the criminal justice system. But at least those are present, whereas something that we will talk about sort of at the end of this episode and also in greater detail in the next episode, is that the Catholic Church largely lacks these accountability structures. You know what I think is the most important difference between a hierarchical structure that you may have within the Catholic Church and one within a democratic system is the fact that within a democratic system, usually I'm talking on a philosophical basis, you start with the presumption that no one has the truth. Therefore, you go through debate and confronting with people in order to not find the right solution, because we don't know what's wrong and what's right, but to find the best solution possible. However, this does not apply to, to dogma, because in religion you have the truth. That's the truth. You have to accept it, and that's it. You, you cannot question it. And within this structure, you have the Pope, who is the most important figure, and he holds the truth. And then you have the bishops, the cardinals, and finally the priests. Therefore, since the higher you are in this hierarchy, the better you know how reality works, then you should follow what they say. This does not apply to a state. And that's why in a state you have all these check and balances that help for accountability, as you were saying. Yeah, I mean, that takes us back to the very first episode, something that we were talking about back then, about how dogma can actually be a self-perpetuating cycle. 
and how because it's coming from something infallible, because it's coming from something above and holy and glorious and inherently true, it just can't be questioned. And so whenever you undermine what is considered as true coming from an authoritative member of the church clergy, then by nature you end up criticizing or confronting what is considered true doctrinally. You know what I mean? That's one of the issues that we have with dogma. Definitely. However, what's important also to note is the fact that now we talked about the, the protection of the clergy on a material standpoint. However, it's also protected symbolically through, for example, the use of euphemism. And I think you can give us a good insight on that. So when we're talking about euphemistic language in particular, I read this really interesting article from NCR, and it was talking about how euphemistic language can be used to perpetuate these hierarchical structures that we've been talking about. So it increases even further the distance in power between the laity and the clergy, and it also it conceals the truth. So for example, when there is an instance of rape or sexual abuse in the church, in the internal documents by the church about this case, rather than referring to it as rape or sexual assault, it's called inappropriate contact or issues with boundaries. It's not actually considered for what it is even internally. And then whenever they move that member of the clergy to, for example, a different diocese, the congregation is not necessarily told, okay, they were moved because they raped a child. They're told they were moved because they got sick or this diocese was too stressful, so we moved them to another one that would be a bit more relaxing. So they're, they're actively lied to. And in this way, obviously, the hierarchy, the internal structure of the church is strengthened and the congregation is completely left in the dark. Yeah. And you know, related to this, it made me think about what the sociologist Cohen defined as denial. And as opposed to a situation of moral panic that he explained, denial happens, and I want to quote what he said, when persons who as audiences, bystanders, observers, onlookers, spectators, or witnesses have to come to see, hear, or know what happened or is going on, but in good or bad faith, they claim not to know. In particular, he identifies three types of denial. And the second one, which is the interpretative denial, is the one that really applies to the situation here. So it's not really that you negate the facts, so you recognize that something happened, but you modify the meaning. So maybe you use other words to soften the actual event. As you said, instead of saying rape, you say inappropriate conduct, for example. So again, you have the event, that's what actually happened, but you try to make the audience perceive something else, something more light. What this makes me think about is the duality of our perception whenever it comes to sexual abuse and sexual assault in general. Because on an individual level, each of us knows and appreciates and understands how horrific sexual assault is. And as individuals, we intuitively get it and we intuitively sympathize with the victims. But the duality comes into play whenever we see that structurally, sexual abuse is not taken seriously. People are not held accountable. Oftentimes victims are blamed. I mean, we've seen this recurring theme in the church where they say, oh, it's the child's family just seeking money. Or whenever anybody else comes out about sexual abuse that they've suffered outside of the church as well, there's always an element of scrutiny by people in their community and legal systems. Yeah, I think that in particular related to the church, it's really difficult to acknowledge that this is a huge problem because it's a religion. So it's obviously based on some values and morals 
that we all share. And one of these values is the fact that you should not obviously make any instance of sexual abuse. And therefore, when you see that there are some huge problems within the system that make it something systemic, you tend to deny it because otherwise you would challenge how the structure itself is built. And that's really difficult to do. That's why you have denial. Yeah, exactly. Actually, what you said also made me think of how obviously this is a religion. So we have this moral foundation that we're, we're talking about here and how specifically whenever we're talking about the Catholic Church, we have to think about natural law a little bit and how obviously abusing children on its own would be a stark violation of natural law because you're causing such injury to such a vulnerable person and you're using a position of power to, to facilitate that abuse, right? But also if we talk about it just purely on a doctrinal level in the Catholic Church, this idea of celibacy, you're kind of going against your own doctrine and, and breaching your internal law, and then you're not held accountable. Therefore, it's extremely important to see how language is both a symbolical and tangible means for protection of abusers. So tangible in the sense that church members aren't told about the real reason clergy leave, allowing them to continue their abuse wherever they go. And from a symbolic standpoint, the, the church doesn't rally people against abusers, which effectively allows them to get away with the crimes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, another thing that reading this article made me think of, because actually there was an example of this within this article. The article itself is great, and it's completely on the nose whenever it talks about euphemistic language and how this can be used negatively. But when reading it, I, I noticed that even within this article talking about euphemistic language, that it fell victim to the same phenomenon that it was criticizing, in that in one instance, it referred to sexual abuse of children and rape of children within the church as sex with children. And I think that it's really important that we recognize the power of words here because there is no such thing as sex with children. Children cannot consent. There is no such thing as sex with children. We need to be clear and we need to be bold about what we're talking about and it's rape. It's a violation of the most basic sense of morality and we need to be honest with our words about what we're talking about here and be careful that we ourselves when we're advocating for these victims and for these children that we don't fall into the same pitfalls of euphemistic language that the catholic church and society at large has done and therefore give in to this denial that you're talking about because it's rape against children and it's disgusting and this is the same thing that happens with adult rape. So you can find articles when people refer to it as non-consensual sex. Well, it is not non-consensual, it's just rape. The point is that I, I don't think people really do it intentionally. They, they just don't recognize it and they don't recognize and acknowledge the importance of language. And okay, here we're just talking about sexual abuse, but it really applies to every domain. It's so important. It makes a huge difference also for the message that you're sending to people. We're talking about rape. In these instances, we're not talking about sex with children, we're talking about rape. So yes, it's definitely important to point out. Absolutely. So let's shift gears now a little bit and talk about another reason that has been given for why sexual abuse is so common within the church. So we've talked about hierarchy, we've talked about language, but now let's move to something that is a little bit more controversial because I think that up to this point, what we've said has been fairly agreeable. 
I've heard it theorized that it's actually this concept of clerical celibacy and sexual repression that lead to instances of sexual abuse within the church. And there has been a lot of discourse on this topic with some people saying, you know, this sounds really valid, this makes sense. And then other people saying, hey, that's really victim blamey. So yeah, tell me what you think. When we're talking about such sensitive topics, we really have to pay attention. There is the risk to go through the path of blaming the victims. However, I I still think that it's really important to uh, address this problem. Because, again, not only we have individual cases, but we see that this is a systemic problem. So somehow you have to address the reason. And this could be one. It's actually really interesting that, that you pointed this out. If we're talking about repressed sexuality, we touch more upon the religious part of the church rather than the institutionalized structure. And it's obviously a really sensitive topic. However, we have to acknowledge the fact that Catholicism is based on the idea of abstinence. And that's what is argued being one of the reasons why. Again, it does not justify, as you said, but it, it's important to see it and to see how this may perpetrate some kind of actions. And what do you think about it? I, I think that because clerical celibacy is such an integral part of Catholic doctrine and abstinence being a very important part of Christian doctrine as a whole, we need to analyze this issue as we would any other. I empathize with the criticisms that this put some of the blame on victims because it implies that just by existing close in proximity to the clergy members, they somehow brought it upon themselves, the victims did. And that's just so far from the truth that I don't even like saying that out loud. But when we talk about this, I think that we should talk about attitudes towards sex and sexuality that are rampant within the church, whether that be the Catholic church or the Protestant church. So for this, I will go a little bit into anecdote. I grew up in purity culture, and for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's kind of this umbrella term to talk about the way that religious belief influences one's relationship with their own sexuality, and that relationship is associated with a lot of shame, with a lot of guilt, a lot of misogyny as well. There's a lot of sexualization of children because there's so much within religious circles that tells people to repress their sexuality There's such an emphasis on sex within purity culture and within these religious beliefs that advocate for abstinence and purity culture and, you know, celibacy, that whenever you have such a strong fixation on sex and on sexuality and on children's bodies, which you often do find within purity culture, you end up drawing these association between things that are not inherently sexual, like a child's body, but you put that onto it and it distorts the abuser's own relationship with their own sexuality to a point that, especially in this context, it's the perfect storm for abuse because you have this distorted relationship with sexuality, you have access, you have hierarchy, you have euphemistic language protecting you, you don't have accountability. It's a perfect storm for all of these things to come together. You know, what else do you have? You have access that obviously contributes to all of this. You have access to vulnerable victims, so to children. And this facilitates the process so much. As you were saying, you have a structure that gives you the possibility to not be held accountable. You have a, a whole mentality that brings you to think you should be abstinent, so you repress your sexuality, and then you have access to, to vulnerable victims. 
And this is indeed another main argument literature makes when trying to explain the reasons behind the systemic problems of sexual abuse within the church. And it is argued that the, the whole system of the clergy gives church members uh, a certain sense of security, that it's also related to the fact that they are people of God. So simply as it is, they are good. So you're sure that this is a safe place and you become an easy target for those kind of people that within the clergy do not protect all the values that the people of God should protect. Exactly. Something that you said is exactly right about lowering your guard. So if you're a parent and you're bringing your child to church, obviously you think the members of clergy around you, they have such a high degree of responsibility, not just on this temporal plane in, in the world, but also spiritually speaking, that there is a greater power that will hold them accountable and that they feel that accountability themselves. And, you know, also as humans, we inherently trust people in positions of authority, right? And so you may lower your guard with your children regarding these people, whereas a random person on the street, you would never trust your child with to go into an empty room and have a confessional or something. But if it's a church member, you might. And again, want to be clear, none of this is saying that this is the fault of the victims, the victim's family, nothing. This is the fault of the hierarchy instilling in these people this idea of trust and then not actually backing up that trust with any real accountability measures. And so you end up being in a position where abusers, they have easier access to their victims and that's facilitated by these structures which instills trust into their victims. And also, you, you might counter-argue the fact that if we, because all, all what we're saying till now is the fact that this problem of sexual abuse is a systemic problem. And you could argue, well, if, if it's such a huge problem, then people should be aware of that and therefore not lower their guards. But that's related to what we said before, the fact that people are not held accountable, that there are not enough media coverage in general. That really does go back so well to what we talked about before, how this duality between how we view sexual abuse on an individual level versus as a society where because there's so much shame as well, touching as well on the, the themes of purity culture, because there's so much shame associated in the first instance, the victim may not feel comfortable coming out about the abuse. There's so much shame and guilt associated with that, especially when you bring the religious component into it. And then on top of that, you know that you are going to face the backlash of your entire community. These may be family members. They may be your entire community outside of your family. So on that level, it's hard for the victim to speak out. And then again, we have the euphemistic language that protects them. We have the concealment of the truth where the congregation is not told what happened. Then on a structural, purely institutional level, we don't have enough in place to actually hold them accountable in a tangible sense either. So on every single level here, sexual abuse is silenced and not taken seriously. So we can consider the problem of accountability either from an internal standpoint, so the church, how the church deals with the problem, we saw all the fallacies of this, but also how to overcome this. But also externally, because in the last episodes we were talking about the, the influence of the church, of the Holy See, within the European International Framework. And therefore, a question that comes naturally is how the international community is dealing with the problem because the Holy See, as distinguished from the state of Vatican City, as we explained in the previous episodes, has 
a specific role in the international community, which is the protection of human rights. And this sounds a bit in contradiction with what we're talking about. So how can an institution that has such huge problem with sexual abuse of children fight for human rights? So how does the international community react to this? You see, we, we can see also an interesting insight from the Council of Europe because we explain how the church is only an observer status because the Council of Europe said that there were not enough safeguards for human rights protection. And that's, again, quite ridiculous because that's the main point of what the Holy See does in the international community. So why is it so? We're going to indeed talk about it next episode. Yeah, indeed. And also another theme that we've touched on briefly in this episode that we will go more in depth in the next episode as well is the the way that the church has built this institutional wall around itself, as we alluded to in the previous episode as well, in such a way that it is now difficult on a national level or a regional level, a local level, to hold abusers accountable through the national or regional legal processes. So because the church has these massive settlements that they can settle out in civil court or because there is this conflict between canon law within the church and criminal law in the state that you see this conflict between the two and it can be very difficult from an external perspective to pierce through that veil and to really get to the root of the problem and to really hold accountable abusive members of clergy due to again these institutional walls that the church has built around it. So we hope that for now, what we build in these three episodes, it's first of all a good insight for you, but also that helped you understanding what, what's our final argument that we're going to explain in next episode. Obviously, we also hope that you enjoyed this and please stay tuned and see you next episode. Before you go, be sure to check out Lucretia's amazing article on the Blue and Yellow blog of the ECA. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and hosted by Victoria and Lucrezia. Thank you to the Blue and Yellow blog of the ECA for collaborating on this project. The music was created by Stone Ocean, and the executive producer was Rue. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. You've been listening to the Maastricht Diplomat, 